Hi, I'm Deborah Holchip, editor of Michigan Today. In this episode of Listen in Michigan, my guest is university librarian Scott Dennis. He's here to share some insights about his dear friend, the celebrated human rights activist, Jim Toy. Jim Toy passed away January 1st, 2022 at age 91, leaving a tremendous legacy across our campus, our city, and our state. He was a founding member of the Detroit Gay Liberation Front, and he gained acclaim in 1970 at a Vietnam War protest in Detroit when he came out publicly, cementing his image as an outspoken queer, an Asian American and a fierce champion for human rights, and he never stopped. Jim got his master's in clinical social work at U of M, and in 1971, he helped establish the university's Human Sexuality Office, later becoming the Spectrum Center, the country's first campus office dedicated to supporting LGBTQ students. In 1972, he co-authored the Lesbian Gay Pride Week Proclamation, making the Ann Arbor City Council the first governing body of its kind in the nation to officially recognize gay pride. Ann Arbor also is home to the Jim Toy Community Center, which for more than 25 years has served the LGBTQ plus community, or should I say TLGBQ plus, which was how Jim Toy was reordering the acronym most recently. Trans issues were top of mind for him late in life, as were issues surrounding gay youth and the elderly. Jim also was deeply religious and was active in the Episcopal Church. In 2019, he was seated as Canon Honorary at the Cathedral Church of St. Paul, in Detroit. Jim Toy was many things to many people. To Scott Dennis, Jim was the kind and understanding man who answered the local gay hotline when the boy was just a teen. Of course, Jim had co-founded the hotline. He helped facilitate a support group for Scott and other gay teens in the 70s, becoming a mentor and a good friend to Scott and his whole family. Jim achieved so much in his life. He founded numerous organizations and contributed to countless causes. He changed so many people's lives, it's hard to comprehend. I suggest you read the story attached to this podcast and look at the show notes for more links. I regret that I never met Mr. Toy, as Scott affectionately calls him, but I did attend his TEDx presentation at U of M in 2012. It was called Transforming Societal Paradigms. The audio you will hear comes from that speech. Scott's audio comes from Zoom. I apologize in advance. Here's Jim Toy in 2012. May he rest in power. I was on a panel in the psychology class. We were discussing sexual orientation. And during the Q&A period, a student said, without holding up his hand, excuse my French, you're a faggot and you're going to hell. Now, I could have said, thank you, I'll see you there. (laughs) Instead, instead, I tried to use the method of peacemaking dialogue. I listened. What am I discerning here? This person sounds angry. I can't relate to that. He certainly sounds homophobic, that's not my values. Maybe I can relate to him through what I expect might be our shared life experience. So I said, first, to attempt to affirm him, thank you, I sincerely thank you for bringing up that issue. (laughs) I do not know of a more serious topic 
That's what I said, and I meant it in an attempt to affirm him. And then I said, you know, out of my own life experience, I think that none of us likes to be brought to trial and tried and judged guilty and sentenced and punished through, uh, through an assault on our human worth and dignity. And I am glad to be able to say that through the decades I have been able to reconcile my sexual orientation with my faith. And the student said nothing more. I've never known anyone who more lived real Christian values in everything he did and in in everything he the whole way he lived his life. And, um, you know, he was in the Episcopal Church his whole life, and he worked for a church in Detroit in the 60s during the Civil Rights era, and he was so instrumental in the Episcopal Church in advancing LGBT causes. In 2019, he was given the Episcopal Church's highest honor for a layperson, which is to be made an honorary canon in the cathedral in Detroit. And his name is carved into a uh, seat at the altar there. You know, it, and it's because it's when he was first... <laughs> Speaking up on LGBT stuff in the Episcopal Church in the early 70s, just horrible stuff was said about him, done with him. He was kicked out of things. He was he was very, very badly treated. He was a follower of Martin Luther King. And I literally mean that literally in 1963, when Dr. King was here, you know, Jim was involved in a church, you know, in Detroit. And he was, you know, he marched not very far behind Dr. King in the 1963 and the march that was sort of the precursor to the you know, Washington, D.C. March, where he gave the first version of the I Have a, I Have a Dream speech. And Mr. Toy was was there for all of that and was, I mean, had admired him all of it and so was a follower of him. Um, he admitted to being nervous before he did certain things, like when he came out for the first, you know, when he was the first person in Michigan to, in a public sort of political way, come out. He would just kind of decide, I have to do this, and then he would do it. So hinging back to sex, politics, religion, I think we'd be further ahead if we shifted that paradigm and said, love, justice, faith. Whenever you come out, you have an adolescence, basically. And I got to have mine when I was actually an adolescent. And so many men my age and older and women have not had that chance. He um, became friends to my parents. He helped my parents be co-founders of the first PFLAG chapter in Ann Arbor, which I think was in the first one in the state. That was, again, in the early 80s parents and friends of lesbians and gays, it was called. I mean, he was absolutely a mentor, like almost like a third parent to me in many ways, but he was also just a really close friend. And we did so many things together. You know, we, we took trips together. We went every year to the Stratford Festival in Ontario. He's a, such a wonderful lover of the arts. I went to so many concerts with him. He had a degree in French as well as in music. He was a big venophile. You know, he, I learned all about wine from him, fine wine and all that. He lived very frugally. But one of the few things he would splurge on was fine wine and dining. When I was a kid, I was told, as I expect many of us have been told, follow the rules. I want to challenge that particular mantra and transform it into learn the rules, learn the written rules and the unwritten rules, because the unwritten ones are often more important than the written ones. I ended up coming out to my parents while I was still in high school, before I moved away. 
And that never would have happened without Mr. Toy's support. Especially at this time, the most common thing was gay kids growing up would not come out till they left, you know, their families usually till they often if they went to college, like I was going to do, that's when they maybe they do it then or even later. You know, in almost all other minorities, racial minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, you're part of that minority because your family is. But by and large, you know, when you're LGBT, others, uh, there's no guarantee that it's more likely that, you know, no one else in your family will be or, or not everyone in your family will be or whatever. And so that is something, you know, we talk about chosen families and we've, you know, LGBT community, we've been building chosen families for a long time. And I got to be in Jim's chosen family. Rules throughout my life that I have found unhealthy and unjust, I have challenged. And so today I'm inviting all of us to consider the rules, the policies, the paradigms, the mantras under which we live that are intended to govern our feelings, our thinking, and our behavior, to challenge those rules. And one by one, when we discover that a particular rule is unhealthy or unjust, then think about the pros and cons of obeying it, or ignoring it, or transgressing it. I think it's fair to say that he was an institutionalist. He believed in these larger institutions like universities, like organized religions. He didn't give up on them just because they had legacies of oppression. And he believed in changing organizations and institutions from within. And I think his career shows all that can be achieved by doing that. And he absolutely embraced the external activism and all of that. He absolutely thought that was crucial and couldn't, nothing could happen without that. But he also, I think, believed that these things, that, the, that these institutions could be transformed from inside as well as from external pressure. And that you really needed both. And that it was by doing both that you could achieve the most. I think his life's work and legacy demonstrate that. It certainly would have been possible for him to be fired. And I think he nearly was multiple times, but he knew just how to walk that line so that he could, you know, apply the most internal pressure, but not so much that the whole thing blew up and, and there was no, and no more progress was made. And that's where I think he was so masterful. And uh, I think a lot of the uh, other, you know, a lot of the women who worked beside him as lesbian advocates and, and things like that would tell you they learned a lot about how to do that. I mean, he would say he learned from them and I know he did, but I think they also learned from him and because he had been over, over the years, he really learned how to, how to make these things uh, happen. So in this next clip recorded for the Spectrum Center's Oral History Project, Toy recalls his early attempts at organizing a campus conference designed for gay students. You can only imagine the university was not having it. I went to the Ann Arbor Gay Liberation Front and said, President Fleming has forbidden use of University of Michigan space and facilities for the conference that we would like to hold, whereupon Jerry, short for Gerald de Greek, a student, stood up and said, pay him no attention, and he hauled out his keys and peeled off one key and gave it to me and said, here is the key to the student activities building. Go ahead and have the conference. So we did. The university sent a spy. I was given access to the memo that he wrote, which substantially said, 
at your request, I went to this gathering. I, he probably said it was small and not very well organized. And if you ignore these people, they'll go away. Following his example, I was a student activist. And at my college, it was called the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. But he was insisting that it would be lesbian and gay. And there was actually people like him doing that is what led it to be LGBT, you know, the lesbian coming first. And then he just carried on with that. And when trans issues, he was always attuned to who was being left behind, who did not really have their full rights yet. And he was so committed to that. And he also had a very deep understanding. He gave me this thing years ago, which said, and he talked to me about how the root of all of homophobia is really sexism. It's really about gender roles and defining of gender roles and not following gender roles. And of course, that's the same thing with transphobia. It's the same thing. It's the, it's the, it's really the sexism. So he had this deep understanding of how everything was connected, about how, you know, if you were going to be a gay rights person, by extension, you had to be a feminist. You had to be for civil rights for all people, regardless of race or ethnicity. These were all interlinked, you know, in his mind. The other thing that I think he understood, which so many people didn't, is these small things can make a difference in the long run. Like, and when you think about it, well, the order of letters and an acronym. But by just doing that, he would constantly get asked by people, especially by, you know, things like reporters and stuff like, wait, what? Isn't it LGBT? Why would you say TBLG? And then he would explain it. It would give an opportunity to talk about it. It would, it would cause the trans issue to get talked about, more, which was his goal. He was, at the same time that he was stubborn and he would describe himself as a patient, he clearly exhibited the patience of Joe the number of times. I mean, I heard another Episcopal priest say the number of times that he calmly and patiently came to the doors of whatever church gathering and had them slammed in his face again and again and again and again. And he never stopped and he never stopped having the grace. It's just, it was the patience of Joe, as this priest said. There's just no other way to describe it. And he understood that that's part of it. That's part of how you make the change happen. The little things, sticking to them, never letting go, and yet keeping your humanity, keeping your openness to all people, being fair to all people, even the people who disagree with you, even the people who are really uh, mistreating you, you know, it was, um, you stand up to them, but you acknowledge their humanity at the same time that you do that. So just a real humanitarian. I belong to a devalued, discredited, despised constituency. We experience harassment, ex we experience discrimination and we experience assault. Because I grew up in Ohio. He didn't really believe that he was ever retired. He was, he was advanced. He advanced from the university to, he had an office at St. Andrew's Church, Episcopal Church in Ann Arbor, which was the office of the Oasis LGBT ministry, which he helped found. And he, um, he kept working at that uh, right till the end. Um, and he, um, that sort of broadened into, there's a organization now called Inclusive Justice. And it's an interfaith organization, but none of us knew all that he was doing. And as I've seen all this reportage since his passing, 
like I didn't realize how much Asian American civil rights work he had done. And in particular, I know that one thing he was thinking about was the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act, getting including LGBT protections in the, the Michigan Civil Rights Law, which is called the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act. And that was certainly a long time goal. I mean, that's been a goal he's worked with other people in the state on for just decades. And unfortunately, it's still not happened after decades. But but you know, he was he he was dogged. You know, he started working on getting the non-discrimination clause in the region's bylaw back in the 70s. Finally, it happened in 94. And then when it did not, you know, he kept going on that to get gender identity and gender expression included. And eventually that was included. So, you know, I think he just saw himself as continuing down that that same path. Now, to be true to myself and true to you, I invite you to challenge everything you've heard me say here today. You could be any race, any ethnicity, any religion, any class, economic class, it didn't matter. He had this ability to be welcoming. I, can't, I could never quote him exactly because um, he had such a great way of speaking, but he said something about being you know, unusual himself. He was certainly someone who could understand when others were unusual in other ways or something like that. So he, he understood that he was eccentric in his own way, not just by, in terms of being gay. That was, you know, he might've said that was one of the more common things about him. So. <laughs> That is not a word one usually associates with Jim Toy. He was an extraordinary person, and his life was an expression of pure humanism. His loss will be felt deeply here for many years. We were so blessed to have him in our community. And I thank you for listening, and I wish you all the best, and I hope to have you back next month. Till then, as always, go blue. <laughs>